In this very room There's quite enough love for all the world And in this very room There's quite enough joy for all the world And there's quite enough love And quite enough power To walk through our every fear For spirit, one spirit Is in this very room In this very room In this very room So I invite you in this moment As we come together and allowing the music The song And the the vibration to allow us to settle in in this moment, to take a deep breath, to let go, and to be present with ourselves. And allowing my words to be your words. If they do not fit for you, let them wash over you. It's an invitation for us to, to dance and move even deeper into this experience of the infinite. And so what I know and recognize, speaking in the first person, but speaking on behalf of each person here, to those that are available and welcome this idea and this experience, I know that there is a power for good. It is everywhere present. It is nowhere in particular, but it is in us and through us and as us. And as we open ourselves and recognize it and partner in co-creation with it, our lives are shifted and changed. Our being, our way of being is transformed. So I stand with you making this declaration. I use my words to welcome and open the doorway as a beautiful guest that is always there, but always seeking the invitation. And so the full invitation here and now, I know that this sanctuary, this building, this community is filled with this, this force for good, this light, this intelligence, this love beauty. It is a vibration, it is a quality, it is, it is the feeling tone. And so I'm so grateful to be, be able to stand with you in this this country of freedom and to speak these words without fear of, of punishment, but to be able to come together in a celebration of that which we know and sense is so true about us and to live more and more from that is such a gift and such a joy. So in this holiday season, this holiday is a holy day, this day being a holy day, I just give thanks for every good thing, for all of the people that have gone before us, for the generations, for the people that designed and created the the microphones and the speakers and the amplified sound, those that created the guitars and the and the percussion instruments and all the things that we celebrate this day, for the human voice to be so beautifully expressed by Martin Kerr, for our volunteers, for those that are working with our children, even at this point in time in their lives, and that energetic of what we stand for here, radiating out in the mosaic of love, unconditional love for all that are available to that. For all we can do is offer it, but where it is received is not up to us, but we can be that presence. And so I know this day is complete and full in every good way. The questions and the challenges that each one of us has before us, we declare an opportunity and a new possibility. And so I just give thanks. I release these words for the guidance, love, direction, and all the resources that allow us to spend this precious time together in this wild and precious life. Releasing these words and knowing that this, the energetic of what these words represents continues to work through us and for us and as us. I give thanks and invite you to say with me, and so it is. All right.
Well, I've already done this once, so I'm warmed up. And Carolyn, thank you. Doing a great job. Carolyn Collin, who just uh, was presided today, did a great job. Let's give Carolyn uh, a hand. Thank you. All right. So what inspired this talk today is one of my favorite poets, Mary Oliver. Your wild and precious life, no returns or exchanges. So this is it. We don't get to give it back. We don't, the, the, our, life, our life is ours to, to, to live and to do with it what we choose. But many of us would like to maybe turn it back in at times. I mean, that's the nature of life. Sometimes life's painful. Sometimes life's disappointing. But it is our life. And so how do we do that? How are we in service to that? Because, you know, really when we're in service to it at the highest level, which sounds very self-serving and selfish, but unless we got our act together, unless we're, we're, we're in, in living in close, close proximity to spirit, uh, chances are we're not showing up in the world with much grace and beauty and love and inspiration. And so we can't give what we don't have. We can't take anyone where we haven't gone. That's the hard facts, the truth of all this. So Mary Oliver, in one of her beautiful uh, poems, says, tell me what it is you plan to do with your one wild and precious life. What is it you plan to do? She's got a beautiful poem I was going to share with you today, and I took it out because I, just, I knew I wouldn't have time, and I wanted to honor your schedules. But it's a, she's got such beautiful poetry. There's a picture of Mary. And uh, she lives, it's interesting, I didn't know this, but she lives in the United States, she lives in Connecticut. And in that area where she lives, most of the poet laureates that have been honored by the United States have come from that area. So I don't know if it's in the water, <laughs> the influences, but isn't it interesting? I mean, that's the, that's the environment that I, Dr. Holmes came out of, too. He, he was born in Maine. And so I think there's something good to be said about living in a little brisker climate, you know? There's a, it, you know, I mean, it's like going to Hawaii. Have anybody here been to Hawaii? It's like, after two weeks, I can't even talk anymore. It's like, hey, this is great, but... So, you know, whatever it is, but here she is, and she's still doing her poetry, beautiful stuff. And, of course, our conversations this month have been inspired by this beautiful book, Wherever You Go, There You Are, by John Cabot-Sins, who's done amazing things. And I'm going to use some of that today to kind of weave a mosaic of narrative that I think has value. And it's always my honor and, and delight and, and privilege to be able to do that. So two of the quotes that come out of John Kabat-Zinn's book are the path, working with yourself with what is happening here and now. So this is it. This is life. This is all we got. We can't, you know, and, and where we go from here is up to us. It's either a crisis or a celebration or something in between. And the, the second one is the secret of all great masters. And the quote is the precision and openness and intelligence of the present, of the present moment. Here's a picture. I want to share a story with you because I think it's a great illustration. I love Anne, Anne Lamont. I don't know if anybody's ever read any of Anne Lamont's stuff, but she's a wonderful writer. There's a picture here I want to show you. There she is with Oprah. Anne's 60 years old now. She's written some great books. And she writes in a very uh, matter-of-fact and sort of very uh, apparent and vulnerable uh, narrative in her books and, and of her real life. She, she's a, an amazing woman. She lives in the San Francisco Bay Area. This book is called Small Victories, Spotting Improbable Moments of Grace. And so I'm going to do my best to read a bit of it to you, but, but also make it interesting because um, I don't know about you, but I don't like being read to, you know, unless it's, it's a, uh, a five-year-old that's uh, learning how to read. 
But in the last chapter of the book, it's called Pirates. And so it's her story of an everyday experience that, that is a, a transformative experience for her. And she begins talking about November and talking about what a kind of dark month November can be, even in, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Jack London said the coldest winter he ever spent was a summer he spent in San Francisco because it can be really cold there right on the coast. So she says, this year, a month ago, all, of force, all the forces of darkness were unleashed. Two young friends were very ill. My dog was diagnosed with cancer. The details of a recent massacre in Syria came to light. Two people I love most in the world were in obscene legal marathons. One of them was in dire psychiatric shape. They left me upset messages for me. Their problems tore me apart, but there was not much I could do. I am a recovering higher power. And she talks about that in a lot of her writings. She, she works a 12-step program, and, and, um, and, and so she references the higher power a lot in her writings. She said, I am a recovering higher power. I deeply want to fix and rescue everyone, but I can't. Anybody here feel like that at times, or just Anne? Yeah, don't we want to rescue everybody? We want to be the catcher in the rye, don't we? Have you ever read that book? Where he just wants to, be in the, in the, he wants to be out in the field where all the little kids are running off the cliff, and he wants to catch them. That's all he wants to do. He wants to save somebody. I have to believe that a real higher power is struggling with this as much as we are. But horribly, if healing and care are to get done, it will be love working through us. I mean, that's the message of all the great teachers. It's love working through us. Dr. Holmes, our founder, said that God can only do for us what God can do through us. And so in our current condition, so, so us, excuse me, let me back up. I believe that a real higher power is struggling in this as much as we are. But horribly, if healing and care are to get done, it will be love working through us. Us, in our current condition, not down the road, where we are in the fullness of our restoration, in wholeness, compassionate detachment, patient amusement. I mean, those are the fantasies. You know, I'll, I'll fix this relationship once I'm in all those great states. And then what happens is we never achieve those great states, so we never address the relationship because we're not ready. But as soon as I'm in complete wholeness and, and patient attentiveness, and you know, as soon as I'm the ascended master, then I'll go back and fix it all. Which is just another excuse to not fix it. But anyway, us now. It has taken years for me to get this well. Which is to say half as reactive and a third less obsessed with my own neurotic, disappointing self. I think we can all identify with this. It's not a quick fix. You know, we realize that life is not working for me the way I would like life to work. And we teach that, you know, we can change our lives. We can change the conditions of our life by changing the nature of our being, changing our consciousness, changing our expectations and all the pieces that go together. It's a mosaic. It'd be lovely if it was just an eight-week class, wouldn't it? I'll do eight weeks and I'll get everything figured out and then I'm going to be master of time, space, and dimension, as Steve Martin would say. doesn't work that way. She said, I don't agree with the pace of how slowly we evolve towards patience, wisdom, and forgiveness. Amen. Anyone would understand if we gave up and settled the way people settled for terrible marriages. But these are our lives. And so we try. We do the work of becoming saner and more authentic, which is hard enough without truly monstrous people crashing in our lives. So then she moves into a, a person, this monstrous person crashing into her life. She said, it's, it's um, Utan, and I think Utan is referring to someone, but of course, she's not going to write the person's name here and create problems, so it's, I, think it's a, I think it's a compilation, perhaps. 
but she spells it U-T-O-N. She said, Utan is the most awful human in my family's life. The one whom, if I were not Christian, I would call lying scum. Except that I know that this person is precious to God. So let's say, then, a devious, two-faced, lying child of God. (laughs) And because, for complicated reasons, she can't sneer at us herself in public, she has two friends that serve as proxy sneerers. And when we come upon her friends, they give us the stink eye. It's sort of funny. Usually, we just call one another to report a eutonic sighting. And then we laugh about it. So, as I wa- so anyway, she's going through all these troubles and all these things are sort of overwhelming and she decides she's going to go to the movies. And she, she, went, she said, on a Saturday for solace, the spur of the moment with no makeup on, put on my fat pants. <laughs> I hadn't eaten as my favorite meal on earth is popcorn and a salted caramel chocolate bar. And as I planned my, to treat myself, sometimes as is true for the coneheads, only consuming mass quantities will do. As I walked from my car to the theater, I saw two things. One, a long line, which made my heart sink. But at the end of the line was a tall man who looked just like my younger brother. And the, the man miraculously turned out to be my younger brother with his wife. They were going to the movie I'd already seen, so I fell in line with them. And then they, they hogged and greeted one another and talked about the synchronicities of all of it. Anyway, so she's standing in line, and all of a sudden, this voice rings out from behind her, and it says, Hello, Anne Lamont. Because she's quite well known, especially in the Bay Area. She said, I turned to see who it was and saw Utan's best friend. Way behind us, she's a buxomy, brassy blonde with teeth like a pirate. <laughs> Named Tammy. She is the only sober alcoholic in our local community who makes my skin crawl. And she called out, Wow, everybody, it's authoress Anne Lamont. And so she's a bit embarrassed and doesn't really want to be, you know. Uh, pointed out, but anyway, she, her brother, sensing her uneasiness, puts his hand on her shoulder, says, it's okay, and all of a sudden, a friend of Tammy's, who's way up in front of them, not in the back where Tammy is, says, Tammy, the man, long time no see, so Tammy walks up and gives the man a hug, and then decides to stand in line there, and all of the people that went, came with Tammy also go up and stand in line now. And so Anne's getting a little annoyed because she's in line. She has paid, you know. It's like sitting at a green light and waiting to make a left turn. You've paid. Well, you've waited patiently. And then some guy rushes through when the light goes red and you're sitting in the middle of the internet. I paid for my green with my patience. So anyway, so she's upset. She said she, call, she called out his name and then came forward to hug him 10 feet ahead of us. And I could see the cross she wears around her neck. She beamed at me. And then the friends she'd been in line with came up and hugged him too. They all decided to stay there. They are now many, many spots closer to the ticket counter. I smile trying to shake it off and be a good sport. For people like me, the fight or flight instinct comes out in the desperate desire to fix. Please, people, to, to, and create harmony. My rage usually goes underground and then pops up like a caterpillar. Anyway, she says, and things got worse. The people still behind us collectively decided that now there were two lines. So the two, the two uh, lines started getting bigger and bigger that, that Tammy had created. She said, I turned to the people now racing to be in Tammy's line and said, there's just one line, folks, just one line. Although clearly now there were two, the real line and the new rogue line. And I said to the second line, come on, you guys. It's really not fair. We've been here waiting. I threw my hands up good-naturedly. Please get back in line. But they liked their line. They weren't stupid. 
Tammy, the leader of the rebel forces now ahead of us, nearly to the doorway, opened her eyes wide and said, oh, oh, I think we're making Anne Lamont unhappy. Ooh. Yeah, it gets better, too. A lot of people laughed. I prayed. Help me. And looked at the ground. And now the lines merged at the door and people were taking polite turns. You go. I go. You go. I go. I was all but pawing at the ground, snorting through my bull nostrils. My brother and sister-in-law were whispering encouragement as if I were in labor. (laughs) I mean, isn't this true? This is life. This is how life comes at us. You know, we're going to get up and I'm going to live the Christ-like life today. The Buddha nature. And then we get in line at the movies. My hands quivered. I put, I put them in my fat jeans pockets. I calmed myself the best way I could, asking my brother, did any of you by chance bring a spear? <laughs> he frisked himself, shook his head apologetically, and I asked my sister-in-law, do you have a flask of, la- of acid in your purse? She rummaged around, produced and proffered two packets of moist toilettes. <laughs> Maybe hoping I could wash my hands with the whole matter, I accepted them. The world is so wrong, and it's a horrible feeling. Like in the Three Penny Opera song, the world is mean and man uncouth. All I could do was hold my head high, wash my trembly hands, try to breathe. I know enough at 60 to believe that whoever said never to fight with dragons, because to them we are crunchy and delicious. So I washed my hands with one toilet, put the other one in my pocket, smelled my lemony hands. Good smells bring such primitive comfort. And I somehow held my own until more people moved to Tammy's line. And I accidentally said, it's not fair. (laughs) No, my son would later say, mortified, and I told him the story. You didn't really. Yes, I did. (laughs) Everyone in front of us turned to stare as if I were wearing my Miles Standish costume. Tammy stepped through the lobby door before wailing to her posse. It's not fair. Ooh. Tears sprang to my eyes. My brother and his wife surrounded me like white blood cells and offered to drive me home. The crowd moved moved us through the door. Even when we got inside, a couple of people in the lobby turned around to see my weepy, authorous self. I felt like so much of my childhood, those times when you felt like you were on a ferry dock and the boat with the happy people was pulling away. On the rock face of loneliness, I laid my money down on the ticket counter. She goes into the the theater. There's only five people in her theater. So all this getting in and, you know, the line, five people in the theaters to see her movie. And she said they all sit as far away from one another as possible, all eating their popcorn like like goats. (laughs) So she said, I'm sitting there and I'm I'm wondering why we even, even were at this unhappy indie movie. What do I have in common with police and gang members? Shh, shh. I soothed myself and just watched, and then it came to me. I was asking the wrong question. The right one is, where is God in gang warfare? And the answer is the same place God is in Darfur and in our alcoholism, and when children are bullied, being crucified. I tried to concentrate on the movie, but kept hearing Tammy mock me and the laughter of people in line. The memory was primitive biblical. She was the serpent going, come on, this is an easier way to do it. It was her animal. We all grew out of gills, tails, and sharp teeth, but the animal we grew out of is still in there. 
It's usually layered over inside the armature of civility, of being presentable. The animal can be the the lottery. It can be juicy, rich, with pure, raw life and a a fierce vigor. So we aren't cut off from the, the instinct. It can be dogs running, a monarch butterfly, a whale. It can be Coco, the gorilla, who told her teachers in sign language that she was a fine gorilla animal. So she decided in the the darkness of the theater to shoot the moon to find Tammy after the movie and say she was sorry. Who knows, maybe those two rogue leaders, Gandhi and Jesus, were right. A loving response changes the people who would beat the crap out of you, including yourself, of course. Their way of the heart makes everything bigger. Decency and goodness are subversive folded into the craziness, like caramel ribbons into ice cream. Otherwise, it's about me and my bile ducks and how unique I am and how I suffered. And that is what hell is like. So who, do I go, who was I going to echo? Gandhi and Jesus or Tammy and me? Then she says, look, can you give me a minute to decide? Do you want to be happy or do you want to be right? Hmm, let me get back to you on this. I sighed loudly and knew what I needed. It was not to army crawl through the lobby of the theater or think all about all the ways in which Tammy needed to improve. After the movie ended, I went to look for her to apologize for my part in the craziness. I surrendered. I laid my weapon down. I got to have transformation of the consignment store variety from the cringing exile to the beloved to fine gorilla animal. Did I find her? Of course not. Life is not like the movies. It doesn't work out in a convenient and linear way very often, but I found me. I found my time-worn dignity. I found the second towelette in the pocket of my jeans and washed the salt off my fingers. And best of all, I found my phone in the car and called a friend. I had tears of laughter streaming down my face by the time I finished telling him the story. As I drove home, I realized that Tammy was probably telling the same story to, to Uton now, comparing notes on my disgrace. But I shook my head. I had responded to myself like a friend. You can't get there from where I've been in line to where I sat now. A few weeks later, I did find Tammy in another line at the market, although with three people between us. At first, I thanked God that the view was blocked. And then I leaned to the side and poked my head out so she could see me. She was holding a clear sack of apples and a tub of Cool Whip. I smiled and looked contrite, and then she smiled too, a shy pirate smile. But it's such a wonderful story of everyday events, of how we respond and how we can be triggered and the things that happen. And then I love her awareness about, I have a choice here. I have a choice to be tortured by this. I have a a choice to, you know, create the whole scenario around it or to surrender it and put it down and to take take on a different uh, perspective of it. And I think it's such a, a simple everyday experience, but it is so profound and it's, so, it's so, uh, such a beautiful um, conveyance and articulation of the human condition. So here's a, a quote from Anne that I want to share with you. She says, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people that you do. <laughs> so in, in um, John Kabat-Zinn's book, Wherever You Go, There You Are, The book is full of these beautiful little practices, and they're very short little um, uh, blogs in the sense of of different practices. So if you don't have the book, at some point in time, it might be worth picking up. But I picked a few today. It's our last week with him that I think are quite significant and to give you a a call to action. And the first one in this simple practice is, is early morning. Early morning is a really special time. 
Early morning is an opportunity for us. For me, it's very powerful. I typically get most of my good work done in the early morning. When I'm working on a Sunday sharing, it's the early morning that's the most uh, productive and, and rich for me. Henry David Thoreau, who wrote Walden Pond, which is one of the early transcendentalist uh, authors, he spent two years, two months, and two days at Walden Pond. He wanted to live close to nature. It was an experiment, and he wrote about it. But his morning practice, he would wake up early every morning, and he would bathe in the pond. If you've ever seen a picture of it at the Walden Pond, there's right next to the little cabin that he lived in. He said he did it for inner reasons. He did it as a spiritual discipline in itself, He said it was a religious exercise and one of the best things I did. He did it not to cram more busyness and industry into one day. So he got up not to do more. He got up to just prepare himself and to be in the quiet. Ben Franklin recommended the same thing. He was an early riser. He said healthy, wealthy, and wise. You know, the early bird gets the worm. But he talked about health, wealth, and wisdom as well. To experience the stillness and the solitude of the hour... And the potential to use that time to expand consciousness, to contemplate, to make time for being, for purposefully not doing anything. The peacefulness, the darkness, the dawn, the stillness, all contribute to make early morning a special time for mindful practice. And it's so simple. You know, but how many times have you or I gotten up and we've gotten up late and then we're, we're hurrying And so the hurry becomes the way of the day, getting the things done, achieving and accomplishing or getting up at the last minute. You know, if I give myself three minutes to get my clothes on and grab something on the way out the door, I'll have plenty of time for the day. But talk about the spaciousness of early morning practice. It gives us a head start on the day, a foundation in mindfulness and an inner peacefulness. It makes sense your doing will follow out of your being. And we know that. We just know that. You know, at a time, you know, I find that a time like this, uh, this time of year, it can be very um, demanding because there's so much to do. You know, there's so many things going on Christmas time. And, you know, we find it here, you know, within the community, things change. We do our Christmas service and all that. And it's, it's, but it's a, there's a lot of energy that can be expended in a time like this. And when we, when we start out the day with a sense of beingness, there can be a beautiful, a beautiful, a way of doing that is influenced by that beingness, but a powerful, simple practice. I guarantee you, if you did that for 66 days, they figure that's the average now. Remember, there used to be 21 days for a habit. Now they know that it's somewhere between, I don't know, 21 and 129. So they figure about 66 days of a practice. If you got up every morning early and gave yourself some time for 15 minutes just to sit and to listen and pay attention to what's going on, I guarantee you, your life would be transformed in incredible ways within 66 days. Maybe a little longer, maybe a little shorter. The next idea that he talks about, and the one I selected today, because there's a lot of them in this book, is called direct contact. You know, for me, um, most of you know that, that, that uh, Laura and I have new grandchildren in our lives. And so direct contact is this idea of that when we see, especially we get to see our granddaughter every week or two, not every day, but it's interesting to watch when we see her that so many things have changed. There's different synapses firing, there's different things. It's just a, the, the whole evolution of it is quite fascinating. And to be, and so direct contact is going into some things in such a, a great example of when we go into the familiar, 
Because each day is new. This is a new day today. We haven't done this. Yeah, we have the same chairs and we have the same, but this is a new day. And when we're fully present in direct contact with one another, then everything takes on a newness, a freshness. So he tells the story of Victor Weisskopf. He was a renowned uh, physicist and a friend of his. And Victor was invited to Tucson, Arizona, to the University of Arizona to do a series of lectures. And he was very excited because in Tucson, Arizona, at the University of Arizona, they have a, uh, a telescope. And it's very powerful. It's called Kitts Peak. And so it's a world-renowned telescope. They've taken a lot of amazing pictures. And so he said, well, this is great. I'm looking forward to this. And would you please schedule a time when I can go up and look through the telescope? And the response was, well, we're not going to be able to do that because it's already scheduled. There's a lot of research going on. There's, it's, it's been scheduled for months, and there's no way that we can create a, a space for you to do that. And he said, well, then, I'll let you, then I just want to let you know that I won't be coming to do this series of lectures. So they called him back the next day and said, you know what? We found a space where you can go up and look through that telescope. And so he went, and he went. It was a beautiful, clear day that he describes in the book. And he got to look at Saturn, and he got to look at the Milky Way, and he got to look at galaxies and stars. He had his whole list of things he wanted to see. And he said it was amazing to see it firsthand. But he noticed while he was looking that there were a number of people that kept coming, in, men and women that kept coming in the room. And while he was looking at his notes to see where to turn the telescopes, the others were looking through the telescope. And he said, who are these people? He wasn't upset by it, but he was just curious why people were there with him doing the same thing. He said, oh, these are, these are our researchers that work here full time. And they've never had access to the telescope. But we thought as long as we're making time for you, we might as well invite them to have the experience. And he said, it was remarkable that here are people that have dedicated their lives to this endeavor, and they've never had access to the telescope. And he said, he said as he left there, he'd hoped that this encounter made them realize the importance of such direct contact. But it's, isn't it fascinating that, and, and so when we have that direct contact, and I would say the spiritual practice is one of connection and conveyance. It's not enough to simply have the experience, then how do we convey that experience? To have the experience, like, the, like uh, Michael Singer said, you know, he just wanted to, to meditate from the surrender experiment. He just wanted to meditate in the woods and do yoga. But what happened as he did that is the opportunities for him to live his life became richer and fuller. So direct experience. Then uh, the third one is, the, is there anything else you would like to tell me? And so in this, he said that he did a, a study. They were training doctors. And we have a, a, a young uh, resident in our family so it's near and dear to me. But as they were training the doctors, they would say, the last question that you ask a patient is, is there anything else you would like to tell me? And they decided to see how this was going because they want to, you know, the bedside manner. They actually know that if a, if a doctor will spend five minutes extra with a patient, this is a hard um, statistic, the percentage of them being sued for malpractice is almost non-existent. Investing five more minutes with connecting with somebody and, and what happened was he took his mother in, John Kabat-Zinn took his mother in to see this doctor who had replaced her hip, and she was having a lot of pain. And the doctor kept looking at the x-ray and saying, well, it, it's a beautiful job. This is extraordinary work. It's exquisite. But never a conversation about her pain. They never acknowledged it. And so he thought, this is quite interesting. So they started filming their med students. And so the med students, they found to a person, as they would say to the patient, the last question, is there anything else you would like me to know? would be shaking their head like this while they asked the question. Is there anything else you would like me to know? Exactly. 
Isn't that fascinating? So it's real. I mean, the body language is. Oh, go ahead. You know, was there anything you'd like me to know? No, of course not. And he talks about how important it is to be present and to be available to what might be. We, you know, part of what, what goes on here, part of the reason of the unraveling of this is that many times we're, we're stuffing things. And with practitioner work, Dr. Gans Ferenc was here earlier, and da- he's a therapist. And, you know, it's, it's the time we spend to unravel and unravel and uncover till we finally we get to that... that uh, we empty the cup finally so we can see what the, what the true uh, challenge might be. And it takes time. It takes time. But unless we create the space for that, I was talking to somebody just before this service and we are talking about an experience we had together years ago. And, and he said the same thing. He said, you know, I, I know that, that no one can fix it for me. It's up to me to fix it. But uh, I want to share this with you. But, he's, you know, but, but to have someone witness it and hold the space for us is very powerful. We can't fix anybody. We can only create the space. And, and, and hold the possibility for them. I found this uh, in some of my notes. He said, we, new questions are required. And, and, and so when we're going through things, is what, am I, what am I being taught here? What issues in my heart are rising up so I may live in greater proximity to divine grace, trust, clarity, wisdom? Our wounds need attention. We all have them. Our wounds need attention. And a wound that goes un, unacknowledged and unwept is a wound that cannot be healed. And a wound you've embraced is a wound you cannot heal. Because once we embrace the wound, it becomes who we are. And you see it all the time, people identifying with their pathology rather than their, their brilliance. Because it's so easy to do that, because it's so popular. Let's, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a victim of this or this. Oh, me too. And then we get together and we talk about that. When in fact, that's part of the journey. And it's not to discount it, but it's not to stay stuck there in the wound. But once we've embraced it, you can't heal it. A wound you think you deserve is a wound you cannot heal. So when we've had experiences and we feel like God is punishing us or someone's punishing us, it's another way we, stuck in the, we stay stuck in that wound. Be your own authority is the number, number four. Be your own authority. It's not be the authority. That's different. But be your own authority. Honor where you are on your path. That might be right for other people, but not for me right now. Maybe later. Or no, I don't do that. Whatever it may be. What is required to participate more fully in our own health and well-being is simply to listen more carefully and to trust what we hear. To trust the messages from our own life, from our own body and mind and feeling. This sense of participation and trust is all too frequently a missing ingredient. And I think Anne Lamont's story is an example of that. You know, to realize I have a choice here. And so she stepped into being the, her own authority. How can I bring awareness and clarity to this? Because we all do. We all go off the rails at times when we see things happen, happening that don't line up with what we think should happen. And so she was able to, to participate in the transformation of that within her own being. Quite beautiful. Developing such an attitude means authoring one's own life and therefore assuming some measure of authority for oneself. It requires believing in oneself. Deep down, sadly, a lot of us don't. I think a lot of people don't believe in themselves. Why would we abdicate responsibility to, to outside authority so much? As soon as we get so-and-so elected, life will be... I mean, look what's happened in the U.S. with the election that goes on for a year and a half. You know? There are a lot of people that believe that Donald Trump, once Donald Trump is president, which is never going to happen, but, uh, but, um, but, but all things will change. It'll all be good. And, and, and so I think when we, we abdicate responsibility in our own lives, because it, it's, it's just a model that I think is broken. 
and yet so many people buy into that. Our esteem problems stem in large part from our thinking colored by past experiences. We see only our shortcomings and blow them out of proportion. And at the same time, we take all our good qualities for granted or fail to acknowledge them at all. Uh, Michael Beckwith was on Facebook the other day, and I love Dr. Michael. He's an amazing guy, amazing teacher and preacher. And he was saying, when you're all prayed up, and you're all meditated up, and you're all uh, studied up, and, you, and you've set the intentions and nothing's happening and nothing's shifting, then the way to move through that is through gratitude. Activate gratitude. What a great, great practice to have in your life when you're stuck. And all of a sudden, you know what? I've got to activate gratitude here. Because gratitude is the feeling nature of the infinite. And so what we want to do is step into that vibration. When we're in that frequency, all of a sudden it opens us up. It's like, well, what can I be grateful for? Because I don't have all the things I'm longing for. I want big shifts. I don't want little shifts. And yet, and yet, gratitude, you know, as, as I read on uh, Christmas Eve, Dr. Holmes said it doesn't matter if it's a planet or a peanut. It is the same principle that creates that. But gratitude can be such a, a great lubricant in our own forward momentum in terms of our spiritual practice. Be your own authority. And the last one I wanted to share with you today is, is wherever you go, there you are. So, this idea that when, when I move to a different environment, when there's something new happening, then it'll be better. When I get the new job, I get the new car, I get the new career, I get the new whatever it may be. As he says, the trouble with this way of seeing is that it conveniently ignores the fact that you carry your head and your heart and what you would call karma around with you. You cannot escape yourself, try as you might. And what reason, other than pure wishful thinking, would you have to suspect that things would be different or better somewhere, somewhere else anyway? Wherever we go, there we are. And if we haven't dealt with it, we're just going to delay it and, and, uh, and distract ourselves from it until we finally can. There's no running away from anything. We think our problems are outside of ourselves. And if I change location, I change circumstances, and everything will fall into place. Starting over, I'll have a new beginning. As he says, unfortunately, we carry our head and our heart and our karma with us. At uh, New Year's, at Christmas celebration, I talked about the, uh, the yogas. The bhakti yoga, the path of the heart. It's such a great, I mean, this comes from ancient tradition. The Hindu tradition is 2,500, if not 3,000 years old. It goes back to antiquity. And they have such a rich tradition, but some people's path is the heart, the path of the heart. And, if the, and so if the heart is out of whack, if we've had our heart broken, or life has disappointed us, or, uh, or crushed us in some way, when that's out of whack, all of our energy goes into making that right. You've had that experience. Or the, the hatha yoga, the path of the body. When the body's not working well, all of our energy goes into fixing that. And so it's not that, and that's not a bad thing. We should, we should address it. And then, of course, the yana yoga, the wisdom, self-realization. But when we're troubled in our minds or we feel like we don't deserve or we're not good enough or there's something inherently wrong with us, it's very difficult to free up enough energy to do something valuable. And what's left in this is karma, which is exactly what John Kabat-Zins is talking about. Karma is, is our work. What is our work to do? Well, my work right now, because my heart is broken, is to, to address my heart. Or my work right now is to get my legs working right, because my leg... But, so it's our opportunity, and I think the beautiful um, suggestion here is that we want to, and we, we should be able to, not because we have to, but because it's our divine nature. Our divine nature, as Dr. Holmes said, is one of abundance. And so it's to live in a balance with our minds 
with our hearts, with our bodies. I mean, Hatha yoga is an amazing, amazing practice. We have a number of yoga teachers in here. You guys know a lot more about it than I do. But one of the things I know about it when I've tried to do it is that you, you take positions that really strain or stretch the body. And then that, that pressure is released. And it's a, it's a very powerful spiritual practice because we, we store a lot of stuff in our joints. If you come to the, uh, the uh, um, meditation for the uh, World Peace Meditation at 5 a.m. on the 31st, we'll be here. And we're going to do a meditation around that. But one of the, and it comes from the pranic healing tradition I'm going to share with you. It's a very powerful meditation. But they, they talk about having, and I know uh, Yogananda, Paramahansa Yogananda, um, had the same thing. There's physical movements prior to the meditation because we store energy. gets blocked in our joints. So the Hatha Yoga people know this. And of course, the wisdom, self-realization. But we have the karma. Wherever we go, there we are. So if we're not going to do our work... Nobody can do the work for us. It's ours to do. Too often our life ceases working because we cease working at life. Because we're unwilling to take responsibility for things as they are and to work with our difficulties. So they're not, it's not something wrong with us to work with our difficulties. It's actually our opportunity. It's how we, we, we create elite practice in our lives. To be more functioning and more balanced and to be a beautiful conduit for the divine presence to be revealed so the simple practices. What would it take for you this year if you were to just simply say, you know what, I'm going to get up 20 minutes early every day, give myself a schedule, get up and just be for contemplation, for a bit of meditation. You know that video I showed last week? It takes 10 minutes. 10 minutes of meditation. Don't have to be any particular faith tradition to just sit up and be quiet and mindful to find, track the breathing. Michael Singer used to use the word uh, mu, M-U, as his mantra. Whatever it may be, live in direct contact so that things are beautiful and wonderful, fresh wherever we go. This is, the, this is not last week here. This is a new, new time, a new opportunity, and I declare that, and I bring a vibrancy to the old environments that I'm in now and a, and a direct experience, direct contact. Is there anything else you'd like to tell me so that when we're having the conversation, we're not sitting there shaking our head either way, trying to convince somebody of our position, but just being available to it? And being comfortable with somebody not agreeing with us. That's not my way. That's not my path. I need this or that. Well, good for you. Because you want to be the own author your own authority in your life. What's right for you may not be right for anyone else. Where you are on your journey. And to honor that. And of course, wherever you go, there you are. We might as well do. My friend Maureen Hoyt told me years and years when I was in a little church in Fillmore. Starting to do ministry. She used to drive me crazy because every week she'd say to me, now you grow where you're planted. Because I didn't, after a while, I didn't like where I was planted. There wasn't enough opportunity. But it was a beautiful thing because actually that's what was happening. I was growing where I was planted. And there was work for me to do in that context. Wherever we are, there we are. So, so I think that along with you, I'm, I'm looking forward, I'm in eager anticipation of what is in store for us in 2016. Why not be in eager anticipation? Why not build an expectancy of some amazing things are going to come into our lives? To spend that time in the early morning and listen and say, where, where am I guided here? What, what nudges are coming along? Who's showing up in my life? What opportunities to study? You know, he talks about wherever you go, there you are, this idea that we go on a retreat. And we've had, you know, we're looking to go into John of God and people here have gone and walked the El Camino in Spain. And all those are beautiful things. 
But he said, when we make that the most important thing in our lives as well, we sometimes there's a tendency to delay what's available to us right now. So it's not either or, but it's both and. Don't wait to be spiritual till you're in the perfect environment, but begin that right now. So our wounds, whatever they may be, as Anne Lamont so beautifully addressed in that, that story I shared with you, our, need, our wounds need attention. A wound that goes unacknowledged and unwept is a wound that cannot heal. A wound that you or I have embraced is a wound you cannot heal. And a wound that you think you deserve is a wound that you cannot heal. And so I think it's time to dissolve this idea that our wounds keep us stuck. And some of these simple little practices to make ourselves available to a a realization and experience of something beautiful and powerful is our opportunity. So 2016, the best year yet. And so it is. Thanks.